Hello and welcome to the new Superhero Finder podcast from IDIFM. I'm Matt and I'm going to be scouring the cosmos looking for unsung heroes, the superheroes of real life spreading some amazing positivity and listening to some fascinating, incredible stories. So sit comfortably, get yourself a brew and enjoy. So I've called today's episode Raw Stories. And as the name might tell you, things get pretty deep. And I just wanted to give you a bit of a warning that there are some talk about suicidal thoughts, um, suicide itself, and some of the medical terms around that. So if you're at all sensitive or triggered by that kind of subject, then just take a second to just decide whether you want to listen or whether you want to come back at another time. But honestly, it's got a majorly positive message throughout and I'm sure that you'll find it valuable, whatever you decide. Enjoy. Hi, so welcome to this this chat. I don't know whether to call it a chat or an interview or just a discussion because Kali have been brought together with Andy and Maggie to discuss something that's no doubt going to resonate with a lot of people um there's going to be some some parts that are quite raw and quite honest we've made a space that's very pure um and with no there's no space for judgment um there's no opinions on what anyone else does or anyone else's experience it's literally just a, a recollection of things we've been through and i know andy it was your wish to want to really speak about the effects of um, things like, you know, um, mental health, um, you know, GP, doctor, NHS intervention on that, different methods um, that you've experienced and and really where that's taken you and and how that's how that's built you into what you are today, but also made you learn some lessons as well. And Maggie, you've kindly joined us as well um, through knowing Andy, so I don't I don't know you. But I'm sure at the end of at the end of this, we're going to know a little bit more about each other. Um, what would be amazing, I think, if and we could just give you some space just to have a talk, and you know, for say maybe ten minutes, that would be pretty great. And just to really go into some of the things that you want to share, because um, this video is all about getting the message out there for no other purpose than just awareness um, and letting people know that actually if you haven't had the space to talk about it, then there are spaces in which you can talk about it and maybe just look a little bit further or um, just look for some ways in which you can do that. Um, so with that being said, I'll, I'll leave it over to you. Thanks so much, Matt, and lovely to be here with you both. And yeah, just picking up on what you're saying there, Matt, thank you so much for holding the space. And that's one of the things that I'm super passionate about is... is um, creating the conditions where we can safely tell our stories. So that's why I created Compassion Circles about 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted very directly to speak about the possibility, no, the, the actual, my understanding is that the doctors and the drugs nearly killed me. 
and I want to speak directly to that topic, really. Okay. But before I sort of begin to unpack that, I'm aware that that could be quite a sort of a incendiary or triggering thing mm. for people to hear. The doctors and the drugs nearly killed me. So it's not a caveat, but it is a kind of a, an expression of compassion. I, I was just, what was coming up for me was compassion for the doctors in America who have the sales, mostly men, relentlessly selling them the latest drugs and it's very very intense you know it's a very it's a it's an industry it's a very intense sales marketing industry and it is no exaggeration to say that there are a group of people that sit down every year and invent new diagnoses for our human family adhd is a really good example personality borderline personality disorder people have sat down in rooms and they've come up with forms of language and then they've given that language to the pharmaceutical industry, who've then gone into laboratories to co-create drugs mm. to, and they've literally built it in waves. So think about things like benzodiazepines, SSRIs, the antidepressants, the sleeping tablets, uh, the antipsychotics. And if you notice, they've all, they all start with anti, antidepressant, mm. antipsychotic. So it's like, it's not okay to be depressed and it's not okay to be psychotic. Mm. And that's very deliberate. So my own relationship to this reality is I'm a 52-year-old man. I'm very happily married with two grown-up children. I've lived a very, I've been such a lucky man. I was loved as a child. I had no history of depression or anxiety or mental illness of any kind. And then um, I had a massive year at work in 2015. I had some things, I was attacked for the work that I do quite publicly online and that affected me very deeply. And almost as a reaction to that, I, I turned up the doors on my work and got even busier. I put on four conferences without a budget and I was really um, almost taken over by this project I've been involved in to make the world a kinder place. So I lost perspective really. I was going through it as a result of this attack. I lost perspective, I was very busy. And it kind of culminated in this crash. You know, we put on a conference, everybody left, and I just almost couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. I was sort of just no energy, total, total crash. So I went to the GP, um, and he was lovely. He was very compassionate, very caring. He said, um, if you still feel like this, come back and see me in a couple of weeks, but you just need to rest up. I felt awful. I couldn't really rest. I was very stressed. I couldn't sleep. I was feeling very embarrassed and kind of I was having the shame reaction about this attack that has happened online and that had been a major issue for me and my family and we'd lost a lot of money in the business. So it's quite it was a trauma. It was traumatic. It was very intense. So I guess that's another important aspect of the story is the un online attack. It was it was cyberbullying and it was in, and it was concerted. It went on for two years. Um, so my identity was really um, being attacked very publicly and I had no control over it. I couldn't control it. Um, so I was losing contracts and yeah, it was very intense and I felt like I'd let my family down. And so that was all in the mix. So I went to the doctor and um, I did go back two weeks later because I didn't feel any better. And my lovely wife came with me and both felt I would benefit from a period of uh, support from an antidepressant and um, I was persuaded this was just before Christmas 2016 
to take the antidepressant and the first two weeks were horrendous. I just felt wrong in my body. I just felt stressed and confused and frightened. And I was told that this is normal and it's gonna take a while and that you'll adjust. And first I didn't wanna eat and then I couldn't stop eating. So I had these cravings to eat and I, was, I couldn't fill myself up. I had these hunger cravings. And I think probably about six weeks later, I went back to the doctor and said, mate, this is not feeling good. So he said, we've probably not given you enough. We need to up the dose. And I was very vulnerable at the time. And I think my wife was very frightened as well by what I was going through. So I went with what the doctor was saying and he was kind of educating me on what process I was going through and that I could expect to feel calmer. Um, it's now 2020 and I've been actively suicidal for much of the last four years. And I've had a uh, extreme adverse reaction to a high dose of metazapine, um, 45 milligrams of metazapine. And I felt like I've gone mad. I've, I wake up, I basically had this, my understanding and I've had to do the research I've had 60, I've worked out, I've had 60 appointments with the psychiatric system, not with GPs, with psychiatrists, with psychologists, with nurses. I've been supported by a crisis team. I've been supported by two recovery teams. I've been to A&E four times. I've stayed for a week in a residential unit for actively suicidal people. I've been to Beachy Head twice. I've sat in a lay-by all day, determined to kill myself. I've been on two train platforms about to jump in front of the next train. And um, right now I'm living away from family because there's so much trauma in the family that we can't deal with it together. So I've come away from family. Um, So my research, and I do feel very angry about this. I had to do the research. Um, my mum's a retired community psychiatric nurse, so she's been my carer this year. And um, she's got challenges of her own, you know. She's, she's in her 70s and dad's facing some challenges there around ageing. So she's had to step in and be my carer, full-time carer. You know, I was in the crisis team every day in March and April because I was very suicidal. And I had to do the research to discover what had happened in my body. Because what I've learned is that the drug companies have been suppressing the research on what I've been through for about 20 years. So what I went through, I mean, I was very fortunate to finally get a third opinion from a psychiatrist who was enlightened and direct, who's a world expert on bipolar. Mm. And um, his understanding is that there are now nine recognized subtypes of bipolar, most of which don't require medication, most of which are reaction to medication. So um, if you look it up and there's not much online because the research has been suppressed, I've had a, I've had a bipolar subtype four reaction to antidepressant medication which creates the conditions where you have what's called rapid cycling bipolar. 
So it's no exaggeration to say that for four years, for most of the last four years, I would wake up one day feeling confident, um, connected, in touch with myself and my work and my values. And I'd have the thought, oh, it's gone. What a relief. And then I would live from that place. I'd be creative. I'd go out. I'd contact people. And then around eight, nine at night, the feelings would start to overwhelm again. And it was like, it was shame. It was confusion. It was distress. And I wouldn't sleep. And then I'd wake up the next morning wanting to kill myself. And the voice that was in my head is, come on, get on with it. You know you're going to do it. Don't keep me waiting. Um, so it's been horrific. And there's no, Maggie knows this. We, we support other folks that are going through these matters. And there's no way to articulate it. You can't, I'm trying, but you can't articulate how frightening it is to live as a certain, in a certain way in one's own skin with a certain disposition and a certain set of thoughts and ideas and then to disintegrate to such a degree. Um, so I just wanna, I just wanna say that I'm, I hope we'll have an opportunity to talk about healing um, because I have figured out some important things around this traumatic journey which I'm not you can see I'm upset I'm not out of the woods yet I'm still very upset by it and angry about it but I just want to say that I don't blame the GP who put me on the antidepressant I feel compassion for him in fact I know that he's went part-time and is now retired because he got so burnt out so right. this is systemic it's not the fault of the psychiatrists or the GPs I've met so many lovely people in psychiatry but we are sleepwalking into this horrendous reality that many of our human family are suffering terribly and or dying. And so I'm so sorry if you're watching this and you've lost a loved one as a result of these medications, either going on it or coming off it or being on it. And I'm also not saying that I've met people who've, who've found great particularly people with bipolar type one who found great help from medication. I have met some people who hear voices who swear by their medication. So it's not all, it's not a complete anti anything, but we've yeah. got to be more enlightened about the danger of basically integrating trauma with chemistry. Cause that's what I was going through. I've got this traumatic experience I was describing. I've got other traumas in my life and now I'm mixing it with these chemicals and it's um, I take it from someone who knows it's incredibly hazardous. Well, thank you for that, Andy. Um, as you can see, it's it's really still quite raw. Um, and it's good, I think it's really good to hear that the compassion you've got for the medical professionals, because I think in this realm, from, from my experience with other people, but also a general consensus seems to be that there seems to be less of that compassion for the doctors because, you know, whether it's a tendency to very quickly prescribe something, but the, the truth is we don't know the full story because it's case by case basis. So there's no, over, you know, there's no sweeping statements about, you know, um, medical professionals, but it's just nice to hear how, how you see that and, and actually your perspective on that as well. 
Um, very enlightening. Just, so Matt, just come in. I know we're gonna gonna give you some space, Maggie, but mm. okay. there was a kind of a there was a low point fairly recently, about ten weeks ago, when I had a first face to face appointment with a CPN, that's a community psychiatric nurse. Um, and she's absolutely lovely, this woman. She's so kind. And um, she had a notepad out. I went to meet her and she said, so should we talk about your care plan? And I said, do we have to? I've talked to 40 of your colleagues this year about my care plan. Can we talk about something else? Because she was like, had a blank piece of paper so she didn't start writing things down. So then she said, okay, well, let's not talk about your care plan. Should we talk about your safety plan? Have you been safe since the last? I said, oh, I really don't want to safety plan. I'm there time you guys you're all about are you going to kill yourself have you got the emergency numbers you know mm. I don't want to talk about my safety plan she said okay what do you want to talk about and I said I want to talk about what makes me peaceful and happy and then and then the low moment but it was also the clarity moment okay this system is not going to help you was when she said okay Andy I get that but shall we scale it back a bit mm. or how can we scale that back a bit that's how broken the system is that she couldn't stay with. I mean, that's such a great moment for a patient to say, mm. I want to talk about being peaceful and happy. Mm -hmm. And there was so much in there that she could have been curious about when was the last time mm -hmm. you felt that? What's made you feel yeah. that in your life, et cetera. But yeah. what she actually said was, and again, I'm not judging her for it because yeah. we're all a product of the system, right? Or every one of us, we're all affected by it. So yeah, that was a kind of, I just, something in me shifted when she said, can we scale that back a bit? And I said, I'm not going to be investing any more time and energy in medics or psychiatry because it's part of the problem for me now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Okay. What about yourself, Maggie? Well, well my journey, I'm 75 um, and my journey of mental health, I was somebody who was very outgoing, mother of four kids, doing wonderful till I was 52. And I took a very dark depression, which took me into mental hospital, three suicide attempts, and totally, um, you know, in hospital practically for a year and a half, in and out, in and out. Um, and then I actually ended up with a psychotherapist that I paid for on my own. And I worked with him for three years to discover my brokenness, which I never thought I was broken. I never thought there was anything untoward wrong with me, you know? And I discovered that I hadn't felt very loved as a child. I had been hooked into the drug approval. I'd learned very early, I had to be a good girl to be loved. So anyway, for many years after that, I ran a successful bed and breakfast. I was doing great. I was totally drug free. I thought I had done all my healing. And in 2017, I took another bad bout of depression. And I thought, I can't do this again. I can't do this illness again. Because I knew how horrible it was. But what happened was because of my age, I got put into an elderly psychiatric ward and it was dire. It was terrible. There was no support whatsoever at all. The doctor who was the psychiatrist, in the three weeks that I was admitted, 
I was seen 15 minutes in three weeks. Wow. And he came with his, his uh, Costa coffee cup, sitting with his Costa coffee, drinking his coffee, not even really interested in me at all. And all he wanted to do was prescribe more medicine, more medicine. So I was sent home um, to a psychiatric care team coming in. In the two years that I was ill, and remember I tried to kill myself three times in this time, um, I saw the psychiatrist twice. And yet he was prescribing medication for me without seeing me, without really, all he was going on was what the psychiatric nurse had told him. And all they wanted to know was that had Margaret got up out of her bed and had she showered and is she upright, really? They weren't really interested. I mean, that was what the notes was, I had got up today. And I was very catatonic. I had, I had no feelings. The drugs were prescribed, should never have been given to an elderly person. Um, I was given lorazepam, which is, should, and it reads in the notes, not to be given to elderly. It affects your lungs by making your lungs not activate so much, not expand the same, to take the oxygen away from your brain. But I should never even have been given that drug because I have a lung problem. So it actually created more a problem for my lungs, which is now kind of made my lungs that I'm very, very struggling for breath. That's why I said to you, I'm breathing when I first said hello. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so my son, during the time I was ill, my youngest son asked for a meeting with a psychiatrist. And we went along and my son, who was, he's formed a family trust and we're benefactors of that, so we can be supported by him. So he asked the psychiatrist, could he record the conversation? And it was only because he wanted to make sure he had covered all his points. And the psychiatrist agreed, okay, you can record me. And um, so my son had researched other ways for my healing. He had asked him about TMS therapy, which is, um, transcranial magnetic therapy that seemingly has had good results and but you could only get it at that time in London on the NHS um, and he also researched but this time believe it or not I'd become a drug addict I'd actually become so addicted to the lorazepam which is equal four milligrams of lorazepam is equal to 40 milligrams of diazepam and I was having that daily Wow. And I was also on 15 milligrams of zoplicone. And an elderly person should only be on 3.75 of, of zoplicone in the evening. I was on the maximum dose. And I was on metazapine. And anyway, my son said, my mother's a drug addict. We'd like her to go to a rehab place. And there is a hospital um, in Scotland that you can go to. But the NHS, it's a private place but the NHS funds so many places, but they weren't wanting to spend it on an elderly person. So anyway, we had this meeting. Two weeks later, I got a nasty letter from the psychiatrist telling me that my son and my husband can never come to another meeting with him 
And if they did, they couldn't speak. And he sent that letter to my new GP, who had phoned me before he received this letter to invite me to come to meet him at the surgery because he was prescribing all these drugs. He had to write the prescriptions for them and he wanted to check with me, you know, to who I was and, and meet me. So it was very difficult for me to even go out the house. I was so frightened of, of going outside. Anyway, my husband got me to the, the surgery and I turned up at 12 o'clock for my appointment and the appointment had been cancelled. Nobody told me. And the reason being was because that psychiatrist sent that same letter that he sent to me to this, this, the GP. So he must have thought, well, this woman's trouble. I'm not going to see her. So anyway, I got then was my son asked me, asked me to get sent to the addiction services, which I did. But we also asked for the freedom of information, all my notes back for the last 20 years. Well, I was horrified with what I read. I was, I, I read a, an email, a message from the addiction people to the, once I had been met by them, um, to my psychiatrist saying, I met 78 year old Margaret, at that time I was 73, who has three children, I have four, and has been an addict for 20 years. Now that was written in my notes. And I had never been taking drugs for 20 years and has never been somebody, I don't drink alcohol, I've never taken illegal drugs ever. So this was written in my notes. So I phoned up and said I wanted that removed. Well, you'll need to get it removed yourself. And I said, it's not up to me. And this psychiatrist should have wrote back to him and said, you've got all this information wrong, you know, but he didn't. And then I found an email from the psychiatrist to the psychiatric nurse saying, if Margaret's son's at the house, make sure he doesn't pull a fast one on you. That was what was written in an email and it was horrifying. So anyway, the addiction services eventually, after nine months, saw me and put me onto diazepam. And I said, you're just giving me another benzodiazepine. You're not helping me come off the drug that I'm on. So they told me if they took me off it, I'd have a seizure. And so I, I'm very spiritual. I consider myself somebody very spiritual. And I wrote a letter to God. I sit down and I wrote this letter to God and I poured out my heart. And I just said to God, I can't do this anymore. And I need your help. And, but also, I accept the journey, whatever it be, whether I heal or I don't. I accepted whatever was to be. So I wasn't asking, begging to get better, but the, if it's God's will that I got better. Do you know, Matt, within two weeks, I was totally drug free and my heart was singing again. Really? And I did it all myself with no help for the NHS whatsoever. I cancelled all my appointments with this, the addiction team. I took the diazepam and halved it and then stopped it. I took mm. this, my son found me a natural sleeping remedy, which I slept with and I cut out the sleeping tablets. 
and the antidepressants, I half them and then stopped them within two weeks. And you know, my son said, mum, you're back. My eyes were sparkling again. Mm. The light was back in. But when I was in well, it was horrible. And you know, I tried to electrocute myself. I tried to, like, I put my, this is how ridiculous. I put the sink full of water and I put my hairdryer on and I put my head in the sink and the hairdryer on and nothing happened. And I kept doing it and doing it and nothing. I got so distressed, I phoned Samaritans and spoke to this woman saying, I'm trying to kill myself and it's not working. And I think she didn't know what to say. Mm. Anyway, months later, after I got better, I told my husband what I did. And he says to me, Margaret, were you standing on the floor? I said, yes. He says, well, you earthed yourself. <laughs> so, but you know, Ma, I'm very blessed that I've got a husband still at home mm-hmm. who cared for me. Every day he made my porridge and brought my medication. He made the soup. He took care of me. He cleaned the house because I just couldn't function. You know, yeah. and, I, and I'm a woman who really is a multitasker, can do lots, wear hands tied behind her back. I'm an excellent cook. I'm an excellent homemaker. I help my husband with his business. You know, I'm a very, and I'm also, um, I did a lot of charity work. I worked with Patch Adams, the American clown doctor in America and in China and Tibet. There's another story there. Wow. <laughs> and um, I met up with them last year in America. Um, we clowned again in San Francisco. And I thought it was 2002 when I clowned with Patch before. And this was now 2019. And here I am. And then, of course, I was in China and Tibet with them in 2004. So I've done a lot of caring clowning. And I believe what I see mental illness, I don't like the word mental. I would say it's an emotional illness. It's your emotions. And I think that there needs to be, what I I do is talk a lot openly about my own journey because I'm not ashamed of it. But I talk about it because I want to see change. I want to see more love and compassion in the care of people. I want to see people held with a lot of love and not just medicated. That to me is never the answer. And never, I never believed in the medication. So probably it didn't do me any good because I didn't believe in it. I'm more in the alternative and, you know, but um, I want to see a better care system for people. And, you know, with this all going on in the world just now, there's going to be so many more people affected. So many people. And that's, it's going to be an epidemic of, of mental, of emotional illness. Um, so my passion for whatever life I've got left on the planet is to to make a difference. And, and if I can, in any way, I've, I've given talks on radio, I've been on television, I've put my neck out there, but I'm okay, you know? I just think, well, some people will like what I have to say and some won't, but I've no attachment to the outcome. No. So no. That's I- me. <laughs> Thank you, thank you for sharing that. And I think, on that same vein, some people will resonate, some people won't. But it's like anything: if you can resonate with one person and make a difference, 
that's job done. That's really all you could ever want. And if it's more than that one person, then that's even better as well. But I think just one thing when you said about the the notes and how inaccurate things were, you know, you've got something systemic where there's either communication problems or I know because my mum's a nurse, sometimes you've got issues where people are looking after so many people that just haven't got the time to write up proper notes. So it's not necessarily a personal incompetence or a personal um, or a thought driven process. Um, but also you've got a system that's scared of almost scared of taking you off something in case it gets it, it makes it worse. Or actually, they'd rather still keep you on a course of something. There's almost a feeling of they'd rather keep you on something so they can kind of know the scope of where you're at rather than try and advise coming back off of it. Um, and I think that's very much dependent on the individual service or the individual GP and their experience on that. But when it culminates into something like that, I mean, that's it's incredible how inaccurate and you described the Costa coffee cup and you can just imagine you can, I mean I just sat there imagining the whole situation and the fact that you remember it was a Costa coffee cup means to me that you were there mm-hmm. but you weren't mm-hmm. able to maybe completely be there and, and be the person that you are um I mean there's going to be some there's some strong things that we've spoken about already I think it would be good for us to talk about some of the experiences we've had and and I'll come in as well about ways to I suppose ways to heal or ways other things that we can maybe apply or maybe we can think about and try as a as a first part of call or if if there's anyone watching that knows anyone that's going through something else or going through something similar or even aware of anything is there anything we can we can advise people try I mean what you know what have you tried that's worked I'll put that out to both of you really well, one has to one has to have enough space to pluck up the courage and find the support to face one's trauma, exactly as you were describing, Maggie. You know, with that three years of psychotherapy and looking at your own what you call brokenness, because what happens if we have unresolved trauma and we start taking chemicals? The chemicals literally mix with the unresolved trauma, and that's that's a neurochemical observation our biology is affected by the continuing presence of trauma if we haven't dealt with it then the traumatic memory is triggering difficult emotions and then those difficult emotions combine with the chemicals mm. um, so that's the first thing is we have to deal with trauma now there are many ways to, many ways the world is kind of waking up to trauma you know lots of the mental health services now talking talking about wanting to be trauma informed which basically means the most simple way of putting it is the difference between what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So exactly as you've, exactly as we've done together today, you share your story and in sharing your story, I mean, it's the other end of the spectrum from the Costa coffee cup. It's somebody that pulls up a chair and says, I'd love to hear your stories. Take as long as you need. Okay. Was that chapter one? Should we come back for chapter two next mm-hmm. week? If you feel like it. Yeah. So it's, sto- it's storytelling. And as we tell our stories, we can come to terms with aspects of our stories. So storytelling, looking at trauma, there's so much going on in this space. And Maggie, I'm sure you'll talk a bit about Shen therapy. But for me, where I am right now is I just want to talk about havening. 
So havening is a very, very powerful methodology has actually been developed by two psychiatrists in the US that themselves were getting so, feeling so oppressed by the system that they have a deep understanding of the way trauma and memory and emotion work. So havening is literally self-soothing. So you soothe yourself with various movements as you visit these traumatic memories and you can literally de-link the memory from the emotion using soothing touch so if you imagine you know when we're held as babies or small children we're touched and held in a certain way that's called the mammalian caregiving response so we need to be held but we can do that for ourselves there are havening therapists out there and they will teach you how to do self-havening so what lets me know havening is a good thing is that nobody is selling it nobody's making money from it it's a very beautiful humane part of our evolution of our understanding so i haven every every day morning and afternoon i might even haven in the queue at the co-op when i'm just you just give yourself you offer yourself that little bit of soothing touch you can do a little affirmation may my mind be open may my heart be may my, my mind be open and clear may but my heart be open to connection and you you're literally de-linking these memories so so the havening and that's really about for me i've managed to escape recovery now i've escaped the crisis team i've escaped the recovery team and i've put myself into a space of healing so for me i mean a shout out to my good friend from school mark mark's taught me about long distance hiking and wild camping and that's not going to be for everyone and i know there's loads out there in you know getting, <laughs> get, getting, out into, getting out into nature there's loads about getting into nature, but for me, it's not just about being in nature, it's about being with nature. So you have to find a way to be with nature, whether that's bird watching for the first time in your life, whether that's lying on the ground under a big old oak tree, whether that's feeling the leaves in your hands, you actually have to get sense, you have to merge with it. Mm. So I, I was finding when I was very distressed, I couldn't go out of the flat and I was frightened. I'd do the thing about being in nature and still not feel better. So it wasn't enough. So there's something about really merging with nature because we are nature, you know, human nature, mother yeah. nature, we all return to dust yeah. anyway. And then the final thing, Maggie, and this is just, I, I literally don't know if I'd still be here without you, love, because you said to me in January, Andy, I've just got a strong sense you've got to stop taking the tablets. And you gave me that courage. And I, and I, I didn't tell my mum or my wife or the doctors for about two months, I just stopped taking it. I stopped taking the metazapine, that was huge. And then God has a bad name in my birth, in my family. Um, we won't go into that. So I wrote a letter to Odd. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's one alternative to a dog. Yeah, dear Odd. Dear Odd, I don't know who you are or what's going on, but I need your help, mate. And so I wrote a letter to Rod as well in January. So some of the things that helped me to heal. Mm. And, it's, and it's ongoing. So now I'm out in nature every day carrying a rucksack, getting some exercise. I've got my third home. I've built a shelter in the woods. I've got a fire pit right down by the river and I go there most days. So that's been huge in terms of my healing. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I think for me, the, the psychotherapy was very, um, uh, it was very wonderful because the guy uh, who, who I saw, he did union analyst he only wanted to work with my dreams. So it was my unconscious. And sometimes I only had a snippet of the dream, but you've no idea how much it unfolded for me. And the realization, I was brought up Catholic and I was brought up with a big thing about guilt and shame and going to the burning fire. So I was brought up fearing God, you know? Um, and so all that 
I realized that this little child was still there and still as an adult was still very fearful. You know, I was very fearful. So after having all that therapy, I thought I was tickety-boo and had cleared everything. But there was another layer of the onion still to come. And it's like the power to face these things and be kind with yourself. And I started to make to run workshops called Celebrate Your Loveliness. Because I believe, this is my belief, it's not everybody's, that every, everyone is beautiful, everyone. And sometimes their behavior isn't very nice, but the soul of them, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, is perfect and beautiful. And if people could just connect with that beautiful divine part of themselves, and I do meditation, um, and um, unlike my, uh, Andy, I can't go gallivanting outside very much because <laughs> I can hardly walk. But um, and I've watched so much Netflix, I'm sick to the sight of it. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, but I really think that um, my passion now is to be available for anybody that needs somebody to listen. Because that's all I can do is listen, yeah, um, and and actually be loving, hold them with a lot of love, yeah. um, see the beauty in them, help them to maybe see their own inner beauty, um, and that's what I feel I can do now, um, and use what's been good for me. I share what's been good for me. Yeah. It might not be what somebody else wants to do, um, but and I always think God is edge uh, um, ego is edge god out <laughs> and um mm. so i always try and um live my life by not creating sorrow for anybody and not taking any and try to be as kind i always try and do an act of kindness every day and it might just be phoning somebody that needs or smiling at somebody or mm. Or give my husband a hug and not nagging him for a change, you know. <laughs> my husband, he's 82. Um, so we're a couple of old cronies. You know, we've been 56 years married. And uh, I think he needs a medal, actually. I think we should really award him an award. <laughs> he should do bravery <laughs> to put up with me. But uh, so, yeah. There's the, the lessons that I've learned. I try and share them with others. And if it's right for them, good. If it's not, that that's okay. And I just, what's coming up, what, what's coming up to say, uh, Maggie and Matt, is that if you're watching this and you're feeling really poorly and you're thinking, oh no, that, that they weren't as poorly as I'm feeling. We really have supported each other, Maggie, haven't we, for the last, what, six or seven years? Yes, and we've both we've both been on the other on the end of the phone when the other one is very actively suicidal. So this is very real. Mm. We're very real. And if you're watching this and you are going through it, we're so sorry, but you are loved and you do matter. Mm -hmm. You do matter and you can get through this. And you, 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 you will find a way. We hope you find a way. We hope you find a way. Yeah, Matt, I was in a film with Patch Adams called In Bed with Patch Adams. I wasn't in bed with him, by the way. <laughs> OK. Glad you were. A man, a man was in bed with him. But how he did it was he jumped into bed beside a man who was very suicidal and he wanted to hear his story cuddled into him in a bed. 
And he said that's the, the, the length that he would go with his compassionate care because he doesn't believe in medicating anybody that's mm. mentally ill. He believes in loving compassion and kindness. So that's what he did. And the film was made in Edinburgh. And believe it or not, I am in the film. I'm a film star. So you're honoured to speak to this film star. <laughs> well, if you'd have said I'd have put the red carpet out. Well, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I got invited to San Francisco to be in another film with him. And I was telling everybody that uh, I'm, I'm a film star now and there'll be a stretch limousine and I'll be in a five-star hotel. It was an airport shuttle bus and it was a motel. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I've just got a... I'm so I'm so sorry, both of you, but I'm going to have to uh, love you and leave you very shortly. I don't know if you guys want to carry on chatting. And no, I'm going to have to go in a second as well. But what I was going to yeah. say is something that strikes me as very clear from today is that old saying. Now I can't remember who said it, but we've got two ears and one mouth, so use them in that ratio. And just that listening and just giving somebody time can really, really make a difference, can it? Yeah, and I love hugs. So I'm sending you a big virtual hug. Ooh, there we go. And you mm. went to. <laughs> there we go. We can feel it. <laughs> big hugs, team. Big hugs, Matt. What you're doing is amazing, mate. It was so grateful. So grateful. Just looking forward to continuing the conversation, mate. Mm. Around doing it for me. Around you know selflessness and selfishness and the myths that are out there i think i think what you're doing is very profound mate i'm very grateful to have met you and maggie you're just such a source of joy and love and humor and kindness and your spirit is undimmed love and i'm so grateful that we met each other in london all those years ago that we <laughs> sat next to each other in that spiritual space together and i stroked your leg i stroked your leg didn't i did you know <laughs> well, we didn't do in we never got to in bed with Andy Bradley. <laughs> Andy, you're too young for me. You know what? Getting in bed with old granny. Getting into bed with your mother. My God. <laughs> okay. Well, guys, it's been lovely talking to you, and I'm sure it will be the last time. Take care. Lovely, Matt. Lots Thanks love. both. Bye bye. Love. See bye. you later. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that just as much as I did interviewing yet another fantastic superhero. I'm so blessed to be able to do what I do. But if you want to follow me even more, check out the other episodes of the podcast. Check out my YouTube videos. And also, you can get me on Instagram at I'm doing it for dot me, which is actually the website address too. So, whatever you're doing today, have a fantastic day and stay super. <laughs>